Good afternoon. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. Crime seems to go in cycles. It's been a long time since Boston or its suburbs have seen a drive-by shooting, but there was an awful one Sunday night. 16-year-old Charlene Holmes was walking by 3436 Willow Street with her older sister when a blast of gunfire came from a car driving by. She died on the street while another 17-year-old on the porch was critically injured. The home is known to police, and now they and relatives of Shea Holmes are asking witnesses to come forward. Coincidentally, we had invited uh, Cambridge Police Commissioner Robert Haas in today to talk about the prevalence of the homeless and panhandling in Cambridge, which we're going to get to shortly. But we're going to start by asking questions about the shooting. Welcome, Commissioner Haas. Pleasure to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Just if you can recreate uh, the situation for us. Uh, Charlene Holmes and her older sister were walking by this home, 3436 Willow Street, which is a home. It's been now widely reported. Cambridge police are familiar with. They've been called there as many as a dozen times for various incidents involving family and maybe some minor drug dealing and that kind of stuff. There were a couple of people on the porch. One of them was injured, but there were other people on the porch, the, the boyfriend of somebody... Uh, can you tell me anything more? So let me just start, Emily, by saying that uh, our condolences go out to the families um, and of the victims. Uh, they've shown remarkable strength and courage through this whole um, ordeal um, and really uh, have been asking the public to help in any way they possibly can to focus on bringing the perpetrators to justice. Uh, at this point in the investigation, there's every indication that this was not a random incident. Right. Uh, it appears that the victims happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, in order to maintain the integrity of the investigation, any additional information will be released by the Middlesex County District Attorney's Office as they have primary jurisdiction over a right. homicide investigation, as you well know. Uh, but wait, I want to just pick sure. up. You said not random. In other words, the, the, it was random in terms of who got shot, but, but the targeting was not necessarily random. Right. I mean, it's being depicted as a drive-by shooting as though somebody was just driving down the street and firing rounds off, and that's not the case in this instance. I mean, you have every indication that uh, this was a deliberate act, um, that it was very much uh, at that particular location. And as you indicated, it just happened to be that the two young girls were happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I presume there's a reason why you're not releasing the name of the boyfriend. Um, when I, I'm not sure where that information is coming from with respect to a boyfriend. Um, so we're, we're, a, a, a male on the porch with the other woman who was yeah, the mm. kid who was shot. Yeah. So I, again, I think it's it's important to say that I think I think everybody's interested in terms of solving this case and making sure that the perpetrators are brought to justice. And I think trying to speculate or yeah. add additional information potentially could jeopardize that. And I think that's that's really uh, what's at stake here. I mean, one of the things I think we need to be very clear about is that it's raised a lot of emotional anxiety and um, concern among the general public and the general neighborhood. Uh, and I also want to make sure it's very clear to everyone that we would never sacrifice the, the public safety in the interest of the investigation if we had any indication that there was something that was broader in terms of a greater harm uh, to the greater neighborhood. You know, Chief, one of the things I said earlier on, it, it does seem like crimes go in cycles, drive-bys, carjackings, those kinds of things. You know, we, we see spates of them and then they disappear. So we haven't seen this in a while. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe other cities around the country are experiencing, but drive-by, they, it was fairly big in the 90s and maybe even the early uh, aughts, but we haven't seen it in a while. It just seems like such, I mean, this is so naive even to say, but such a reckless, I mean, the idea that you would drive by a, a, a home where there are other people around, even if you were targeting somebody in particular. I mean, does that tell you anything about it? No, I mean, one of the things that's extremely disturbing to me, and I've had a number of conversations with district attorney and, and my colleagues about this whole notion of the reckless endangerment, not just to the people that are involved, yeah. but the general neighborhood. And I think that uh, there really needs to be a focus in terms of making sure that um, that there's a greater consequence for people that are going to engage in this kind of activity. Yeah. You know, as you know, Boston Mayor Tom Menino has been really, really outspoken in recent, well, more than a decade probably, about getting people to come forward and say what they know. I presume there's the same um, sort of code of silence in Cambridge. It's the same everywhere. I mean, has that been hard, getting people to speak? I mean, you know somebody knows something. Mm -hmm. First of all, people saw it. It's more than likely that they even know who was involved. But getting people to speak? No, in this situation, I think it's very different because uh, both girls are very well liked um, and uh, it's really hurting a lot of people. A lot of people are in pain. A lot of people are suffering. And I think everyone wants to try to help 
to get at the heart of what t- what took place because they this is such a grave injustice of what happened. Um, so I, I really don't think we're going to kind of encounter that kind of um, silence uh, that we see in other types of situations because of just the whole dynamics of the situation. The other girl, uh, Thaniali Caro Felix, 17, she's in critical condition. Can you tell us anything about the extent of her injuries, I where think she that's, was shot? That's pretty much sums it up as far as uh, going beyond that. I know that the family's been spending a great deal of time uh, with their daughter. We've been staying very much in touch with both families because we want them to be reassured that we're doing everything in our power to uh, move forward on the investigation. I mean, I'm presuming one of the reasons why you don't want to say what kind of condition she is in because you don't want the perpetrators to know. I mean, I'm just get, I'm not I'm not CSI or anything here, yeah. but I'm just trying to get to the bottom of it. I think it's I think it's safe to say that uh, the investigation is very active. It's moving very aggressively, uh, and I think that I want to leave it at that point. Right, Chief. There's a lot of outrage on this, and we certainly hope uh, absolutely you get to the bottom of this. All right, we are going to continue with the issue that we were going to. We invited you here with a couple other people to talk about panhandling in Cambridge and Harvard Square. We're going to get to that. We're also going to take your calls. Do you give spare change when you're asked on the street or at stoplights? Why? Why not? You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. WGBH programs exist because of you. And Greenberg Traurig, an international law firm with offices in Boston and more than 30 other cities worldwide, addressing the complex legal needs of businesses from startups to public companies. Global reach, local resources. G2Law.com. And History of Science. Can we have unlimited power? Discover the ways power has been harnessed from wind, from steam, even from inside the atom. Don't miss History of Science, Wednesday night at 10 on WGBH 2. And the members of the WGBH Sustainer Program, whose gifts of $5, 10 or $20 a month make up the most reliable income for the programs you love on 89.7. Learn more about sustaining membership at WGBH.org. Four years ago, a young, athletic Wall Street banker invested in a bicycle. Evelyn Stevens was a rookie cyclist, but not for long. Evelyn was, you know, one in a million. She's become one of the elite who will represent the U.S. and women's cycling in the Olympics. We take it just as seriously as the men racing in the Tour de France. For us, the Olympics are huge. Her story today on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon at 4, here on 89.7 WGBH. Hi, my name's John, and I'm a WGBH sustainer. Sustainers like John break their gifts down into monthly installments that automatically renew. That helps 89.7 plan better, and better plans mean fewer fundraisers. And that's why John is responsible for this hour of programming coming to you fundraiser-free. Thanks, John. Support WGBH as a sustainer online at WGBH.org. On the next Callie Crossley Show, we talk to anti-poverty activist Peter Edelman about his new book, So Rich, So Poor, Why It's So Hard to End Poverty in America, today at 1 on WGBH. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. You may have noticed that as the weather warms up and the streets fill with tourists, There are more panhandlers out there. They're asking for spare change on every block, holding the door at coffee shops, sometimes even setting up lawn chairs on the sidewalk. Who are they? Where do they come from? And how much money are they making? And do you give? And should you? We're going to be taking your phone calls this half hour at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. We want to know from you how you interact with uh, panhandlers, the homeless. Do you? Do you give them a wide berth? Do you sometimes reach into your pocket and give them what you have? And why do you? Do you ever have a conversation with them? I've got some experts here in the studio I'm going to talk to first. As I was saying earlier, Cambridge Police Commissioner Robert Haas is still here. Also joining us is Vincent. Vincent Flanagan, he's the executive director of Spare Change News, which publishes publishes a newspaper written and sold by homeless people. And Denise Gilson, president of the Harvard Square Business Association, again taking your calls at 877-301-8970. So all all welcome. Um, when we were talking about doing this segment a couple weeks ago, um, I had had some – I lived downtown Boston, so I had had a number of uh, exchanges or run-ins, you put it, with uh, panhandlers and homeless people. So one of our producers, Ann Mostu, went out into Harvard Square and just did a very random survey and talked to uh, as many homeless people and or panhandlers, I should say, people asking for money as were willing to talk to her. 
Here is, uh, I'm going to start with John. He's, John Casey's a 59-year-old man who also says he's homeless. He talked about how he and other panhandlers stake out territory in Harvard Square. Yeah, I talk with, we talk in the morning, and then we just decide on where to go. Like, I got three other friends that are doing it. We meet at Starbucks. We have our coffee, and then we head out. All right, Denise, they meet at Starbucks, have their coffee. Starbucks, you know, $2.08 for a grande. And then they head out. Um, this is – Starbucks is a very common location for uh, panhandlers because people willing to spend 2 bucks on a cup of coffee oftentimes have spare change, especially if the coffee is two oh eight. They've got a pocket full of change coming out. But does it surprise you at all that they're that organized? No, we know that they're very well organized. And, um, you know, this is a problem that Commissioner and I have been working with for about 18 months um, very actively. There are about 8 million visitors that come to Harvard Square. And, you know, the question that I always get from tourists is, what are you doing about this? You know, who are these people and why isn't Cambridge addressing this issue? And the reality is that, you know, Cambridge does address the issue. Um, the city alone has over 150 nonprofits registered in the city of Cambridge, many of, many of which are dealing with homelessness, um, whether it's food, shelter, medicine, even care for dogs and cats. You might have noticed if you've been in Harvard Square lately that there are a lot of homeless that have animals. So it's an ongoing issue. Um, it's very well organized. And, um, you know, our, our um, challenge is how to strike the balance between their rights and, mm-hmm. and the rights of businesses and um, how does everybody coexist? I want to ask the police commissioner, uh, Robert Hines, about that because panhandling itself is not illegal. Some of the behaviors that go along with it can be if they're overly aggressive or abusive in language or physical kind of but, – but panhandling is not illegal. No, it's not. It's a, actually, it's been uh, – by the courts, have been defined as a First Amendment right um, – in fact, it happened to be a Cambridge case prior to me coming to Cambridge uh, that really kind of struck the tone with respect to the, striking that balance and indicating that people have a right, as Denise indicated, to coexist, coexist peaceably um, and affording them an opportunity to make sure that we observe civil rights uh, and their civil rights as well uh, and just making sure there's a balance going on in Harvard Square. It's a dynamic Unusual place, and for many people coming to Harvard Square, may be taken back because they're not exposed to that kind of um, uh, scenery, scenery in, in Harvard Square. But Harvard Square and the association are very proud of what Harvard Square has become. Do you do, you do a census, informal or otherwise? If, if... Once a year, there's a certain census done with all the homeless population. It's done in January, yeah. um, and we try to get an idea of just how many people are um, in and around Boston and uh, Right, the but that doesn't area. really speak to panhandling, no. which is a completely different issue. And I think it's an important uh, point that you make, Emily, because there's a general notion, just it's, it's just a broad brush, this homelessness. And I would tell you that everybody that finds them in that situation has their own individual backgrounds, individual stories, and own individual reasons as to why they're there. And it's not just a general population that's just uh, kind of being uh, ignored. Vincent, I want to ask you, Vincent Flanagan, as I said, the executive director of Spare Change News, do, does your newspaper take a position on panhandling? Um, first, let me say thank you for having me. Um, no, not uh, specifically. Um, as the commissioner said, you know, the courts have made it clear it's a First Amendment right. Um, our view is, you know, we rather empower people to um, be self-employed, in our case, self-spare change, and acquire income that way. So if they sell your newspaper, they can make a couple bucks that yeah, way. Yeah, they, they buy their newspaper for 25 cents and sell it for a dollar. Mm-hmm. So, so, but that's not gonna that's not gonna make them rich. I mean, it, it's no. not gonna keep them off the street either. No, but you know that and other benefits from the government do help people get housing mm-hmm. and maintain housing. Where do uh, you, Denise and Commissioner, stand on um, things like I had an encounter with one homeless woman who set up a lawn chair in front of. Um, one of the Starbucks downtown, and, you know, I, I was walking by and I said, you know, I said, I, I just don't approve of that. Mm-hmm. I said, now, I said, and she started in telling me her story. I was willing to listen to the story. I said, but I said, what if everybody did that? You know, you're, you're here taking up a public sidewalk. It's a little bit like the Occupy issue. If once Occupy came in there, that, that territory was off limits and off ground. And there's other people who stake out grounds. There's another one who plunks himself 
in front of a post on the corner of Newberry and Dartmouth. I mean, then that means that area, that seating, that corner, is just off limits to anybody else. Can you, can you do that legally? Can you just stake something out as yours? Well, Commissioner, do you want to handle this one or shall I? We do, in fact, have some ordinances. And again, I think, uh, as Denise kind of indicated, uh, there's striking a balance, uh, affording them an opportunity to engage in those kinds of activities that they have a right to do. Uh, what's been uh, really successful, and, and Denise has kind of alluded to, is we really have struck a fabulous partnership with the Business Association and our social service providers, and we're working very closely together. The traditional method was, well, it's a police problem. Let the police deal with it. Uh, we have officers that are just dedicated to working with that population. And again, I think when you talk to th- these folks, one of the things they feel like is that nobody's showing them any kind of dignity and respect. And those are, our officers are really good at talking to them, setting some boundaries for them, and, and oddly enough, to our amazement, we've been doing this now for two and a half years, they follow those rules. Mm. So I think it's just a matter of communicating with them, explaining to what the situation is. We had one situation where a man was standing in front of the store, and all the officers simply had to do, because he established a relationship, was walk up to that gentleman and say, you know, if you stand in front of the store, people can't come and go, and actually found him an alternative location to go, and that's where he went. Mm. Uh, so I think it's those kinds of daily interactions and being respectful uh, in terms of dealing with them and not just kind of brooming them or sweeping them away. Chief, you, you referenced how so many different homeless people have a different story. And by the way, we want to take your calls on this issue today about giving to panhandlers or speaking to them or helping them out in other ways other than giving them money. We're taking your calls at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. As I said earlier, we did an informal survey. One of the people we spoke to was Carolyn, who is also uh, describes herself as a home, homeless woman in Harvard Square. She didn't want to use her last name because she said she was in a domestic abuse situation. And she said she began panhandling for the first time a few months ago. Here's what she said. I feel bad about it, you know, um, kind of asking for help. And this is kind of supportive, too, for me because some people come by and they'll ask how I'm doing and... I'm not, like, invisible. You know, it's interesting, um, Vincent. In some ways, it takes some guts to, to panhandle. I mean, you, for the most part, I'd say, I don't know I don't know what the ratio is, but it's probably a 90% rejection rate or even higher. Is that true? I don't know the figures. Um, I would think that would be probably correct. Uh, <laughs> or more. Or yeah, more. Maybe 98. I, like you, live in downtown Boston and walk from Winter down Winter Street yep. to the train every morning. And, yeah, I would guess for every uh, 10 people that walk by a man asking for change, he's or woman, he's lucky if one person gets it. Um, do you ever give yourself? Yes, I do. And why? Basically because there are people who I, I do know and um, I'm sympathetic to their situation. Um, and I feel that I'm occasionally I want to help them out. A lot of uh, people who run homeless shelters and those kinds of things say that's the exact you know, the exact opposite behavior is the way we should all say, you know, give, give money to the Pine Street Inn or Rosie's Place mm-hmm. or some of these other fabulous shelters like uh, Denise mentioned. And that is the, that's where your dollars are really going to go to support homeless people. Anyway, I want to take a couple of phone calls. We've got uh, Pepper from Somerville. Go ahead, go ahead, Pepper. Thank you very much, Emily. Uh, I wanted to say I really enjoy the show, and I'm glad you're doing this one. I wanted to tell Vincent that I buy my paper from Harold in <laughs> Davis Square. Uh, and I did want to say to you that when I speak to these folks in Harvard Square, I make eye contact, I talk with them, and I offer either an apple or an orange uh, I started that when I visited London, and there were lots of panhandlers there, too. You know too. what, Pepper? That's really sweet. But I've actually gone up to people and said, come on, I'll buy you a hamburger. I'll buy you, uh, you know, a slice of pizza. That's not what I they do. want. Yes. <laughs> they don't want your apples and oranges or your sandwiches. They want your money is my well, discovery. Well, I, I had a few people that were very glad to have that apple or that orange. And I've never had anyone refuse it except if they didn't have teeth mm. to eat it. I have had people refuse my offer to buy a sandwich. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for doing the show. Okay. And I'm glad people are listening. Yeah. I want to thank you for buying the paper. <laughs> Certainly, <laughs> Vincent. Buying Certainly. the paper is a good thing. You, you know, um, Denise, I'm sure you, both, all of you, you know, with your frustration at this, I mean, you've got 
a, a lot of people in the panhandling situation are people who homeless. I don't know how to even characterize home, homeless, but but people in desperate situations, and a lot of them with substance, alcohol abuse problems, alcohol and other substance. So this idea that somehow you're giving to that, that you're, you know, I, I always feel like I would be supporting a habit. Right. You know, one of the things, um, and we've had lots of conversations about this, how do you deal with it? So one of the things that we recently did is we prepared this brochure. And, um, you know, it's um, Harvard Square Business Association Help for the Homeless. And we're going to be passing this out in Harvard Square. And essentially what it does is um, it lists the six agencies that we deal very closely with. Um, and it does two things. One is we're going to be giving this to the kids that said, you know, and it says, if, if you need help, here's where to get it. If you need a shower, if you need clean socks, if you need food, if you need medicine, if you need care for your animal, here's where to go. The other thing it says is if you want to help, rather than giving to the panhandlers, these are six agencies, you know, within, within you know, a stone's throw of where we're standing where you can help. And we suggest that maybe you make a donation to one of these six. Because we do. We get a lot of, you know, people will email, people will call up, bump into people in the street and say, what are you doing about this situation? Why are there so many people here? And what are you doing about it? How can people conduct business? You know, this is, it's problematic. You're trying to get into a business. You want to buy a cup of coffee or you want to do your banking, whatever it is. It's complicated. And as a you know member of society you see this and you say these people need help you know clearly this isn't this mm-hmm. isn't an ideal you know situation in your life right you're you're wondering where your next meal is coming from you're wondering where can you take a shower where am i going to sleep tonight it's a big problem mm-hmm. so here's a way to to sort of help i agree so. i you know i think you got to go to the bigger agencies but you know that's you know. Chief, as I said, a lot of these people do have bigger problems, and one of, one of the problems is that you don't know what's true. I mean, that's true with anybody on the street, right. by the way. Right. But there's a, another guy that I run into all the time who stands in front of a Starbucks and he says, "Spare change for a homeless veteran." Well, I don't know, but that, but this this uh, sort of request of sympathy, like being a veteran. I, I remember when I was in New York City, there was this woman who, in the dead of winter, would put a garbage just just a garbage bag. She, she actually was legitimately pregnant. She was pregnant. She'd sit on the street wearing a garbage bag. Now that's, you know, first of all, talk about guts. That, that and It was, you know, 20 degrees or whatever it was. You know, they do these extreme things to, to play on your sympathy. How can that be a First Amendment right? Is you, it my First Amendment right to say, I don't believe you. Show me your veterans card. I mean, I, I suppose <laughs> you could engage in that conversation, but I don't they, want have, to do they that have a right to do that. But uh, I think what's, what's really been... Um, uh, I think remarkable in terms of the work that we've been doing is that we have to be equally persistent. And we've been working with people one-on-one, individually. And some of the, the people that have been what we have deemed chronically homeless, we have actually gotten into services. But it's a matter of when they're ready. Um, and I think you know, to some degree, to your point, uh, some of the panhandling can be enabling uh, and allow them to continue to exist in this kind of uh, lifestyle, which many don't want to exist in but don't really have other options and really are desperate and actually acting out of desperation. Talking about Cambridge Police Commissioner Robert Haas, Denise Gilson, who's president of the Harvard Square Business Association, and Vincent Flanagan, executive director of Spare Change News. And we're taking your phone calls this half hour at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970 on all things panhandling related. And we're going to take a call now from Rosa in Boston. Welcome, Rosa. Hi. Thank you, um, Emily. Yes. Uh, so um, I guess I used to be what they called a pit rat. Um, used to panhandle in um, the, in Cambridge, and my um, daughter used to hang out in that pit. <laughs> right. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I must have known her. Um, Probably. That was back in the late nineties. Um, so definitely, I, I felt at the time that um, just you know, if anybody, if everybody who walked by had just given me like a quarter or something, that would give me enough to you know get a cup of coffee, um, get something to eat. It definitely was a lot more helpful than the organizations that were trying to help. Um, I know in Boston they do have some really good ones. I also ended up um, in San Francisco, which was a lot less help. Lot well, less Rosa, help. why did you do it? Were you legitimately homeless? Were you a runaway? Why, why, why were you panhandling? Yeah, I guess it was a runaway. Um, How old were you? I was 17. And, Yikes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and how are you doing now? I'm doing fine. I ended up going back to school. I have two kids and a job. and but at that time, that that was what I really needed. Mm-hmm. 
Rosa, were you from the area? Yeah, yeah, okay. I was from the area. We find that many of the, um, what we call travelers in Harvard Square lately are not from the area. They're yeah, but from she traveled to San area. Francisco. She admitted that, too, so there are a lot of travelers. Right. right. I started in Boston, but when the, it started getting cold, I went to San Francisco oh, and just smart. traveling all over the How country. How did you get the money to go to San Francisco? Um, I think somebody bought me a bus ticket. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So and there were a lot of really, I mean, you know, I always found like there can be some really nice people who, who help you out and, you know, when you need it. Yeah. Nice or naive. All right, Rosa. <laughs> Thanks so much. I don't know. He might have been trying to recruit me. Exactly. 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 <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. Well, thank thanks you. for that. You know, we we also talked to a couple other um, people. We had um, a conversation with Justin in Cambridge. He's 31 years old. His favorite spot to ask for spare change is on Newbury Street near the intersection with Mass Ave. He he says um, he talks about what he does with the money. Here you go. Here's Justin. Uh, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't using some of it to buy, like, pot, but, well, I just bought these two, uh, these two, uh, foam mattress pads because my back's been really bothering me and I needed a better surface to sleep on. And here's how Justin responds when people tell him to just get a job. I was looking for work for two and a half years before I became homeless. If I couldn't find a job when I had a roof over my head... Think about how much harder it is to get a job when you don't have a roof over your head, when your address is a drop-in center. Yeah, I understand and I'm sympathetic there, but I'm less sympathetic because he admits he's using his panhandling money to buy dope or whatever it is. It's not the sandwiches. It's not what we were, we're hoping or putting it in the bank so he can you know, rent an apartment or get a room somewhere. How do you respond to that, Vincent? Well, you know, I think it's regrettable that... Some of the money was used to buy pot, but obviously some of it was also used beneficially for him. Um, I don't think that um, homeless people are different from anyone else. They're, you know, they have vices, as we all do. Um, I think one of the things that Spare Change News wants to do and other homeless organizations is you know, dispel the myth that you know all homeless people are drug addicts or alcoholics. A lot of homeless people are people who are one paycheck away from being out of their home and and need help and um, the services that the city can provide aren't always foolproof and sometimes they do need a handout. Um, to a point you raised earlier, you know, one of the things I will often do is offer to take someone to the local Lambert's and buy them food there mm-hmm. or, um, you know, or, or the local bagel shop. Do they take you up on it? And that? I'd say one out of three people yeah, take, see? take me one up on one out of three because right. what they really want is your money, not the bagel. Right. And, and some of it, admittedly, you know, for things that you don't want, like drugs and alcohol. Others, because as with Justin's case, he wanted to buy mattresses. Uh, um, <laughs> dope and mattresses. <laughs> dope mattresses. But, you know, I'm, I think it's naive to assume that, you know, that, that the same vices that exist in homeless people don't exist oh, in absolutely. people with homes. Well, but those people are out there earning their own money and spending right. on, you know, it's a, it's a free market, spending mm-hmm. on whatever, whatever mm-hmm. they want. Talking to Vincent Flanagan, who's executive director of Spare Change News, Pol- Boston, uh, excuse me, Cambridge Police Commissioner Robert Haas and Denise Jilson, president of the Harvard Square Business Association. We're talking about panhandling and we're taking Taking your calls at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. And we've got uh, Lisa from Watertown. Hi, Emily. You know, I have a lot more sympathy for panhandlers than I do for the nonprofits who seem to send out squads of kids with clipboards every summer. You know, a panhandler might not have options, but nonprofits definitely have other options to solicit donations than to set up a gauntlet on the sidewalk. It's annoying. Like what? What are you talking about? Like those? Some of those are very. I agree. They're sort of the lame nonprofits. Like like who? Um, I've seen Massperg. I've seen a bunch of them out there. Massperg, Honestly, I try to ignore March of what Dimes. The, yeah, I, I, I try to ignore what the nonprofit is. It's clear that they're actually paying people to go out on the sidewalk. And I just think, you know, there's got to be a better way. For no, there is. To Lisa, you are absolutely right, because if you give that way to a nonprofit, 
you're not getting your tax write off. Think of it that way. Even if you're only given ten cents, well, it's true. Yeah, you know, it's true. And, and everything you know, the, is tax deductible yeah. if you give to a homeless shelter or you give to the March of Dimes, whatever it is. If you do it in a proper way, you, the taxpayer, get a benefit. So you shouldn't be dropping change. I feel the same way about you know the Salvation Army. It's like, right. you know, I you should I do have, it I'm in a in a proper likely. way much more likely to give to a panhandler especially if they uh, especially if they have a funny sign i saw a guy yesterday who had a sign that said this is my panhandling sign and i gave him a buck lisa you're a sucker all right nice one though a nice sucker with a good with a good uh, you're, you're right about the nonprofits on the street straight sidewalks though thanks a lot for calling in thanks what, what do you say to that, uh, Denise? I mean, she said she'd rather give to somebody on the street who seems to be really genuine and needy than some of these nonprofits who are also set, I like that, setting up gauntlets. It's funny. You know, we have a lot, obviously, in, in Harvard Square. Um, lots of kids running around with clipboards. And it's it's part of the, the urban scene. Um, you know, this whole thing, um, you know, whether people like it or not, the reality is um, it, we're sort of the crossroads to the world, right? global leaders, homeless people, and everybody in between. So, you know, if they want to come to Harvard Square with a clipboard, we, we <laughs> welcome them there. All we ask, really, is that, you know, people um, sort of respect each other's space. Yeah, that's space. the issue. It really is the, the issue. Um, you know, for us, you can sometimes up at the kiosk, the out-of-town news kiosk, it is sometimes impossible to, you know, walk two feet without being accosted by you know, either a panhandler, you know, it could be, you know, kids with clipboards, you know, save the children, save the wheels, Greenpeace, you name it, it's up there. Um, So we welcome it as part of the, you know, overall um, environment. And again, you know, for us, it's really about respectability. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, as long as we, um, as the police commission said, if it's aggressive panhandling, it's one thing. Well, it's, you know, uh, actually, Kelly Crossley is going to be dealing with the issue of chronic poverty in, in the next hour, which is a little bit different because not everybody who suffers chronic poverty is in this situation. But I want to go back to what um, you, the police commissioner, um, Robert Haas, said a little bit earlier about a First Amendment right. I mean, is there a point at which uh, they've crossed that? And, that, and by the way, not uh, there are communities across America who just flat out ban it. I mean, it's just not allowed. So I don't know how it can be a First Amendment right in Cambridge, but not everywhere in America. Well, (laughs) Emily, as you know, we have uh, different... Yeah, the People's Republic of Cambridge, I know. We (laughs) have very different federal district courts across the country. Uh, Ours happen to be uh, a little bit more... uh, Is this a federal issue? It is. It was a federal case that went before the First District Court. Um, It's a First Amendment case. Mm -hmm. I was the chief executive officer for the federal Mm -hmm. courts in the First Circuit. So, I, I mean, really, and I think the thing we're trying to emphasize to folks um, is that really it, if you're starting to feel unsafe, you feel that somebody is kind of across the boundaries, we want you to call because it's more important from their perspective telling us that that behavior is going on. And if they're doing it with you, they're probably doing it with other people as well. And I think the other thing that's really important to underscore what Denise said is that it may appear that we're tolerating certain kinds of behavior, but I can tell you there's a great deal of working between the business association, the service provider, or business association, and service providers, and our, and our officers. And our officers are very active in, in the field. And we've seen a dramatic change from last season to this season. One of the things we saw that was a new phenomenon for us was the travelers coming in in large numbers mm-hmm. and really not familiar with the area and really didn't understand what the boundaries were. And we spent a great deal of time establishing what those boundaries are, how you be respectful to everybody within the square and making sure that you can do what you Where need to do. Where were those travelers sleeping at night, by the way? They were uh, sleep, sleeping all over. Yeah. Um, we basically had them uh, taking up space in front of door fronts and things like that, uh, down Memorial Drive, the DCR property along Memorial Drives. Uh, we don't allow tents, uh, so we don't allow temporary uh, uh, resurrection of, of structures and things like that. But they'll find a way to sleep uh, in a variety of different situations. Um, we actually made sweeps through Harvard Square early in the morning to make sure that they were out of the doorways uh, in a timely fashion. We've had some business people that allowed it, uh, but then started to realize that it, it, it crossed over the boundaries and then called us in to kind of work with it. So mm-hmm. um, it's really, uh, and I think the thing we've kind of impressed upon uh, the association is that you all have to set what you think are the right boundaries for everybody uh, within the square. And then by doing that, then you give us the ability to make some corrective changes along the way. Talk about hand, panhandling with uh, uh, Cambridge Police Chief Robert Haas, Denise Gilson, who's president of the Harvard Square Business Association, and Vincent Flanagan, executive director of Spare Change News. We're also taking your phone calls this hour, 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. And I've got Jen from Bedford. Go ahead, Jen. Hi, 
Hi, thank you for covering this topic. I think it's really interesting and certainly an important issue for, for the cities and towns in the area. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to comment. I worked in the back bay for about 20 years, and I think um, there was obviously a lot of panhandling that was going on there. But I, I do think of panhandling as very different than giving to a nonprofit organization. I think when you give to a panhandler, you're making a personal decision to give somebody money to do with whatever they please. And you have to realize that going into that transaction, it's not the same as giving it to, to a nonprofit who has a, a mission and a moral responsibility to fight homelessness. That's, I just don't think you true. can you can you can evaluate them using the same set of criteria because if you do, I think you're right. You're going to be very frustrated, and you're going to feel like you, um, you know, you you weren't you you didn't get what you intended out of it. So I think a lot of it has to do with intent. And I also think it's a person-to-person thing. There were a lot of people in the back bay. I, I, I happen to not give to panhandlers, but there were a few people that I knew over the years that I always gave to because I knew them and I knew their stories and I was okay with whatever they did with the money. Hmm. That's a good point. Vincent, you want to come in on that? Because it, you know, Jen is right. A lot of people just, they give regardless of whether, you know, it's Justin who's going to buy pot or, or, or new mattress. They don't care. Well, I think, when you asked me before if I gave to panhandlers, I said uh, selectively, <laughs> and I sort of follow what was just said. I give to people whom I know, you know. personally. Mm-hmm. I know their stories, homeless veterans who I know, you know. Legitimately, uh, legitimately they are veterans. Yeah. Not, that are legitimately veterans. Um, a man who I happen to know where the person did live the year before and why they lost their house. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, you know, I, selective giving, I can understand. I think, you know, you need what I think someone said to me that makes a lot of sense at spare change, for example. I mean, saying is we want to yeah. give someone a hand up rather than a hand out. All and right. I think the more organizations that exist to give homeless people a way of earning money so that they don't have panhandling. Exactly. All right, we're going to take one more phone call today. Kathy from Cambridge. Good. I'm glad we have somebody from Cambridge. Go ahead, Kathy. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, first of all, I just want to um, really praise on this issue um, our police commissioner because nice. um, there have been, um, I guess, I don't know how long it was ago, maybe a year ago or so, that there was a, some kind of a city council um, forum or something on this topic, and Ken Reeves, one of our city councilors, was really determined to try to see how we could criminalize uh, panhandlers and homelessness like the rest of the country is doing. And, Not homelessness. And Robert Haas no. really, you know, said what the rules are, you know, the laws, and, you know, that these are people too. And I was just in Harvard Square 10 minutes ago or so, and it was the Save the Children people that were accosting me, <laughs> you know, not the panhandlers. And the other thing I want to say is that when you said that, you know, it's tax deductible to give to Salvation Army and that kind of thing. It's not. Well, if you drop um, it in the bucket on the way. It's know, only tax deductible if you earn over a certain amount of money. I'm low income. Um, I'm on the board of the Alliance of Cambridge Tenants, which represents public housing and uh, Section 8 tenants in Cambridge. And, uh, you know, I don't have, I don't make enough money even, you know, to deduct my medical expenses or to deduct any kind of um, contributions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's important to not only look at it at, from the liberal kind of, you know, making enough money uh, point of view, but also from point of view of other people that, you know, may want to help. And, you know, I, I liked what the last caller said. I mean, I make decisions kind of on a case-by-case basis. And, I can't give money all the time. I can't afford it. But I always try to look at the person, smile at them, acknowledge them. You know, and I don't know who's homeless and who's panhandling. So I just, you know, I'm proud of Cambridge that we don't (laughs) criminalize homelessness the way the rest of the country does. Kathy, thanks for the call. Although I do want to – Ken Reeves was not in favor of making homelessness illegal. No, but I think he expressed some of the concerns a lot of people had in terms of – especially what you, uh, Emily, had talked about in terms of just being somewhat – as it characterized being a cause as you're trying to walk down the street. Uh, But I appreciate Kathy's comments and and I think Cambridge is a special place. I think we're very proud of it. All right. Cambridge. Police Commissioner Robert Haas, Denise Gilson from the Harvard Square Business Association, and Vincent Flanagan from uh, Spare Change News. Thanks to all of you for coming. Great conversation. Thank you for having me. Up next, got allergies and the pollen bugging you? 
We're going to talk to someone who will tell you why it's much worse this season. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show, 89.7 WGBH. We'll be right back. This program is made possible thanks to you and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health. And the Museum of Science, now showing To the Arctic, presented by Warner Brothers Pictures and IMAX, a story of love, family, and survival in the harshest place on Earth. Tickets and more info online at MOS.org. On the next Callie Crossley show, anti-poverty activist Peter Edelman. In the 1960s, he was a legislative aide to Robert F. Kennedy. The two traveled to the Deep South to see extreme poverty firsthand. In the 90s, Edelman became a household name when he resigned from his post in the Clinton administration in protest to the president's welfare reform. Now he's taking on the forces that are driving our wealth gap in his new book, So Rich, So Poor. That's today at 1 on WGBH. The WGBH Spring Auction has gone into extra innings. Bid to win sought-after gift certificates, home electronics, even Patriots tickets. You could even land an incredible getaway to Chicago, Greece, Jamaica, or any other JetBlue destination. And every winning bid helps WGBH hit it out of the park with more great programs. It's time for extra innings at auction.wgbh.org. Context beyond the headlines. Issues you want to know more about. Stories you'll want to share. News and depth. Online at WGBHnews.org. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show every year. It starts appearing on windshields and in storm drains, leaving behind its bright yellow traces and a string of annoying side effects. That's right. You guessed it. We're talking about pollen, that powdery residue that blankets New England every spring. Now, we all know that pollen is necessary for plants to reproduce, but for most of us, that's about all we know. So this afternoon, we ask the professor, where does all this stuff come from? Why does it make us sneeze? Why has it been so bad this year? Joining me is Richard Premack, BU professor of biology and a botanist himself. Welcome, Richard. Okay, thanks for having me. All right, let's start with the basics. What is it? How, what, what, how does it formulate? Well, pollen is produced by the anthers in flowers, and pollen grains are the uh, male stage of the, the plant, so that it, it is equivalent to sperm in animals. And so it has to get from the anthers of one plant, which produces it, to flowers on another plant of the same species in order for fertilization to take place and for the eggs in those flowers to be fertilized and become seeds within the fruits of those flowers or the fruits develop from the ovary of the flowers. So in Is most, some of it from trees too? Or no? That's right. So what causes the hay fever in the spring, the, the pollen allergies in the spring are trees like oak trees, um, birch trees, alders, um, pine trees. So these are the, the most common species which produce the, the allergies. And it's mostly species that are wind-pollinated. So most of the species in the world are pollinated by insects. So insects, bees, and butterflies visit the flowers and carry the pollen from flower to flower. But for these trees in the spring and then grasses in the summer and then ragweed in the autumn, they're pollinated by wind. Hmm. So wait a second. They, do they all produce the same kind of pollen? I mean, so why is it it's, it's this thick yellow stuff that every flower and tree that you've just mentioned, it's the same? Plants, each plant produces a different kind of pollen, and it produces it at a very specific time of the year. So the, the way in which these plants are successful is that at a very specific time of the year, the plant makes both its male flowers and its female flowers. And each species flowers at a very specific time of the year and has a certain kind of pollen. Most of the pollens are either yellow or white, but they're very different in terms of shape and characteristics. But when they mix in all together, it looks like one thing. 
it it all looks like one thing. But when your when your car is dusted with pollen uh, on a particular day, it's probably only one kind of pollen. Really? So one day it may be oak pollen, the next day it might be birch pollen. A couple of days later, it might be pine pollen. So we actually had a huge cloud of yellow pollen covering the city of Boston about a week ago, yes. and it resulted in. Uh, uh, Ponds actually turning Yellow. golden in yeah. color, golden in color. Uh, cars getting covered with golden pollen. Actually, the streets, actually the streets in front of our house, were actually golden in color. And then when the rain came, you had all this yep. coating of the uh, curbs with this golden color. That was all pine pollen. Pine. That's what I thought. That's right. Yeah, because I was up at uh, our lake place, and that was that's a lot of pine up there, and that was thick, like like half an inch. I that's mean, right. It was that was just... all pine. And was it is it is there more this year? Is it, is it a greater quantity? It seemed like it was thicker than ever. There's tremendous variation from year to year in the amount of pollen. Uh, plants sometimes have relatively weak flowering, and they only produce a relatively few flowers. And then certain years, like this year, I know was a tremendous year for oak pollen. So you could just look at all the oak trees, and they were covered with flowers. So it just depends on the weather the previous year, whether it was a, a sunny year, which was allowed the plant to produce a lot of extra resources that went into the flowers or not. And so there's a lot of variation from year to year in the amount of pollen. Also, there's a lot of variation in, in year to year in terms of how we notice the pollen. So if you have a period of about a week when it's been relatively uh, moist and uh, rainy. Like right now. Well, not right now, just before the flowers are ready. So actually Mm -hmm. at this point, all the flowers, all the wind-pollinated trees have already released their pollen. But what's happening right now is the grass plants are actually getting ready to produce their pollen. So what's happening right now is that all the grass plants are getting ready to release their pollen. And also another plant, which is called the plantain, is getting ready to release its pollen. And then once this rain stops, all those plants that have been waiting yep. will suddenly release their pollen oh at once. That's so right. That's so that's going to happen again. So we're going to have a lot of grass and plantain so pollen actually this in a week or so. Rain is probably good for the grass because then it can. It's going to start growing a lot, but but during rainy and moist weathers, plants don't release pollen. No, they can't, plants yeah. only release the pollen when it's dry and sunny. So a sunny dry morning that's slightly breezy is is the conditions in which the plants release their pollen. So we have this huge burst of pollen. So there's no pollen for the last couple of days. There's not going to be any pollen released for about another three or four days. And then we're going to have this huge release of pollen. Like over the weekend, it'll be back. That's right. And one of the interesting stories with, um, <laughs> with plants releasing pollen also is that it's very much affected by temperature. And this year, we actually had the warmest and driest first three months of the year. And so this year, we actually had all the pollen release about three weeks early because of the warm temperatures. Mm. So normally, for example, oak trees and birch trees would be releasing their pollen um, during the first week or two of May. And this year, they all released their pollen during the, the second week of April because of this extraordinarily warm year we had. All right. So I always get myself into trouble with discussions about allergies. But I mean, everybody has a reaction to pollen. But I mean, are there some people that are extremely allergic to it and others that are just affected. Like my eyes will itch, but I don't call that an allergy. Right. A lot of people aren't allergic to pollen. So it really, there's a tremendous variation in the human population in terms of of allergies. So people are allergic to all different things and some people aren't allergic to anything. And the reason that we have allergies to pollen is quite interesting. It's on the surface of the pollen grain. Pollen grains are mostly spherical. They're really tiny. They're about uh, a thousandth of an inch long. And these pollen grains have protein on the surface. And this protein allows them to recognize when they're on the stigma, where on the, when they're on the receptive surface of the flower. Ah. So the, there's kind of a, a, a recognition system between the pollen grain and the receptive surface of the flower in which it lands, which tells the pollen grain that it's time to germinate and also tells the plant that this is the right kind of pollen to germinate. And so this pollen, which is on the surface, when we breathe the pollen into our nose, it gets into our nose, it gets on the surfaces of the, the nasal passages. And if you're allergic to the pollen, your immune system thinks that this protein-covered pollen grain is an enemy invader. It's a, it's a bacteria, mm. it's a virus, or it's some kind of parasite. And so your immune system reacts to the pollen. But in fact, it's not an invader. It's just, it's really a, a reaction that you, your body has, which is, which is out of control. It's an allergic reaction, which serves you really no purpose. Yeah. But I mean, some, I mean, with, with the pollen that we had last week, a week or so ago, I mean, 
almost everybody has some kind of reaction because it's just so prevalent. I mean, it's it, you're wiping it off your hands, and if you get it in your eyes, so it's a, so so it's not necessarily that you're allergic to it, but you will have a reaction because there's just so much of it. That's actually not quite not true. It's, it's really only a very small percentage of the population. It's maybe like 10 or 20 percent of the population that has a reaction to pollen. And people react to different things. So what one person reacts to, for example, oak pollen or birch mm. pollen, another person won't have any reaction. In my particular case, <laughs> I'm very allergic to plantain pollen. Now, what is and plantain? Plant, plantains are very common weeds that we have in our grasses here. They have, they have long, linear leaves, and they produce a stalk uh, of little white flowers at the top of it that oh. are wind pollinated, and I'm very allergic to that really? because I studied those for my PhD <laughs> dissertation. <laughs> you and know so exactly. I was getting huge um, sort of uh, nosefuls of them really? every day for several years, and as a result of this, I became very sensitized to it. And so it's it's an unusual type of allergy, but I have it, and and some people have it, and some people allergic to grass pollen, some people allergic to, for example, to ragweed pollen. Mm-hmm. So can you acquire an allergic reaction, or do you, do you, are you born with it, or as time goes by, you might become? Well, allergic reactions to pollen generally don't develop until people are, are like around six or seven years old, and then they kind of wax and wane during people's lives. So at particular times of your lives, you might be more allergic to allergic to pollen, and then it may gradually fade away, or it may increase over time. So the immune system keeps changing how it, how it relates to pollen. And so in my case, I was very allergic to plantain pollen. And then most years, I, I don't have any reaction to them. All right. Talking to Richard Premack, he's a BU professor of biology and a botanist. So is this going to go all summer long? Because it seems like you don't notice it after. Because But there are plants that come out, a lot of flowering plants in late August and actually into September. Well, the the big burst of allergies is is one big burst in the month is in April and May when all these trees flower, and then when the grasses start flowering, there's another burst of pollen and another reaction of allergy, and then the other big one, which happens um, in in August and September, is ragweed, mm. and ragweed is probably actually getting worse than it ha- has ever been because there are a number of studies which suggest that ragweed actually does better with higher levels of carbon dioxide. So as global carbon dioxide levels are rising, ragweeds are actually producing more pollen and are doing better. And also, the length of the ragweed season depends upon when we get the first frost. So usually the first frost kills back the ragweed plants. And last year, for example, we didn't have the first frost until November. I remember. So we actually had two months in which... um, two months of of fall where people were still getting allergies to ragweed. All right. And that is Ask the Professor on pollen and allergies, and I'm glad we did. Richard Premack, thanks so much. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. From suffrage to desegregation, now gay marriage will ask, what does it take to change people's minds? And as I said earlier, coming up next, Callie Crossley Show. She's talking about the problem of extreme poverty. And tonight on my television show, Greater Boston, the Diamond Jubilee comes to Boston. And Suffolk Downs reveals its plans for a resort casino. That's tonight at 7 on Channel 2. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio. On the web at WGBH.org, Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon.